Save your psalms. Psalm 91, beginning in verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge. By the way, that's technically for you, O Lord, are my refuge. Even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high. Because he has known my name, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with a long life. I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. So Holy Spirit, we read this psalm. We roll it out as it were like a scroll before you. And as we read it, we say... Lord, show us the truth in these words. We pray that you will help us not to read into the words and not to pluck out of these words things to prove a point, but simply to read them as you give them. And may we see Jesus in these. Help us with this and teach us this morning. We just ask to be taught by the Spirit of the living God. So Holy Spirit, come and teach. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Dostoevsky, he said everyone needs a somewhere, a place he can go. Inevitably, there comes a time you have to have a somewhere you can go. William Faulkner said, how often I have lain beneath rain on a strange roof, thinking of home. Spurgeon said, the soul is at home in God. And Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode, our home, with him. Home. They say home is where the heart is, right? Somewhat cliche. But there is something about home, and we all want a home, we all need a home, we all need a a dwelling, a safe place, and that seems to be the substance of Psalm 91. Psalm 90... The psalm before this, you might notice in your Bibles, begins the fourth book of the psalms. By the way, if you're doing psalm study, complete side note here, but there are five books of the psalms. They're organized into five different books. What's interesting is Torah contains five books. What's further interesting is to compare book one of the psalms to Genesis, book two of the psalms to Exodus, book three of the psalms to Leviticus, book four to Numbers, book five to Deuteronomy. Do that on your own time. 
It's fascinating to see how the Psalms in each one of the five books within the Psalms parallel or speak to or describe even what's dealt with in the first five books of the Bible. And I think that's absolutely purposeful in the way the Psalms are laid out. But here we are at the beginning, really one Psalm in, Psalm 91, one Psalm into Book 4, which begins with Psalm 90. And, and Psalm 90, you might notice this, bears the title, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Psalm 91 in the Hebrew has no title. So it's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. Now, the old rabbis would say to you, would say to me, that if you have several psalms in a row and you have one that has a title or a name ascribed to it, and then the psalms following have no name, it's likely the following psalms were written by that person. So there's good evidence even beyond that to say that Moses wrote Psalm 91. Because Moses wrote Psalm 90. And furthermore, there are similarities in Psalm 90 and Psalm 91 to the Song of Moses that's written in Deuteronomy 32. So those who have done those comparisons, say Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 90, Psalm 91, all have similar words and phrases. And so the thought is that Moses did, in fact, write Psalm 91. We can't know that for sure. And I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. It doesn't really matter. Some say it was written, no, by David. Some say maybe one of the sons of Korah. I think it probably was Moses because, again, the parallel seems to fit. But whether or not Moses wrote it, note how Moses begins Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. He begins with the dwelling place. That God is himself their dwelling place. Dwelling place is the word ma'on in Hebrew, and it simply means a safe place. In fact, it tends to be meant of the most inner room of a home, the den, we might call it, or the family room. Kind of the heart of the house, the place where you feel the most secure, the most comfortable, where you kick off your shoes and you are most at home. And that's the word that's used for the Lord, our dwelling place, our den, our hiding place, our innermost room. And then, of course, the psalmist, be it Moses or David or someone else, the psalmist writes, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And the word shelter there is hiding place or refuge. A safe place. You know, we might say, out of the public eye. When the door closes behind you, oh, I love that sound. There are certain days I love it more than others. The door goes, kaboom, and you go, how was your day, dear? It's out there. It's out there. (laughs) Better now, because it's in here. When you really arrive home in that refuge, that shelter. But again, whether Psalm 91 was written by Moses or written by David, Psalm 91 is a psalm for the homeward bound. A psalm for the homeward bound, for those heading on the way, going home, longing for home. It's also a great place to go during emergencies. Because it's Psalm 91 verse 1, that's 911. It's perfect. Make that call. Psalm 91 verse 1. This is a Savior psalm. I absolutely believe it is. Speaking of Jesus, directing our eyes to Jesus. But it's a Savior psalm for all emergencies along the homeward journey. Charles Spurgeon wrote, In the whole collection, there is not a more cheering psalm than Psalm 91. 
Its tone is elevated and sustained throughout. Faith is at its best. It speaks nobly. He who can live in its spirit will be fearless. Psalm 91. Psalm 91 encourages, like what I discovered this last week, an old Irish farewell blessing. Very simple, one-line blessing that says, Good night, God bless, and safe home. You might say that as friends are leaving in the evening to head to their place, or, or maybe leaving to go back to home on a journey. Good night, God bless, and safe home. And Psalm 91 is about traveling safe home. Now, the way to read it is important because the language changes a bit and actually there are three voicings that emerge in the psalm. Three voicings or three voices and the first voice speaks to and about those who make their shelter in the Most High. So the first voice, the main voice you hear in the psalm is the psalmist speaking to those who shelter in the Lord. We see that in verse 1. We see it in verses 3 through 8 and then verses 9 through 13. So it's the psalmist talking to others who are headed for home. That's what I'll call the first voice. And then the second voice is the psalmist declaring God as his own refuge. So now he starts to speak in the first person. He only does it a couple of times in the psalm, but he just breaks in with his own feeling about traveling safe home. With his own sense of God being his refuge, he interrupts the flow of his psalm in verses 2 and 9. And then the third voice, the divine voice, is the voice of God. The last verses, 14, 15, and 16, is God responding to the one who abides in the shelter. So we'll kind of use that as an outline for this morning. The first voice, and then the second voice, and then the third voice of the psalm. And the first voice begins, again in verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That verse is a summation of the whole thing. Bears the intent of the entire song right there. And so the psalmist begins saying, hey, blessed is anyone, blessed is he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. He will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. But immediately before he goes any further, he breaks in with his own testimony with the second voice in verse 2 saying, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And with these two opening verses, he describes home four ways, as a shelter, as a shadow, as a refuge, as a fortress. Shelter, shadow, refuge, and fortress. Good descriptions of the security of home. And he gives four names for God that parallel these four descriptions of home. He names God, backing in from verse 2, he just calls him my God, Elohim. In the Hebrew, the the generic but larger word for God, Elohim, by the way, it's the plural form of the word God. El is God, Elah is God's, at least two, and Elohim is three or more. So he says, my God, my Elohim. And then he says in verse two, the Lord, the Lord, well, that's Yahweh. So named Yahweh, my Lord. You see that every time you see Lord in small caps throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. It's Yahweh. And then at the end of verse 1, he refers to the Lord as the Almighty. The Almighty. This this bears a little explanation. If you heard the old Amy Grant song, actually written by Michael Card, it's El Shaddai. 
El Shaddai is God Almighty. El being God, again, and Shaddai, the Almighty, Almighty One. The first time we see this in the Bible is Genesis 17, verse 1, which says, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Here's the explanation. Maybe perhaps you heard the word Shaddai gives a sense of the feminine side of God. I've heard that preached. I've heard it repeated. It's from the Hebrew word, word Shad, the root word for Shaddai. Those who think this say the root word for Shaddai is Shad because it's the smaller version of the, of the larger word, right? Shad in the Hebrew means breast. Therefore, this is the nurturing God. This is the God who feeds, the God who cares for. El Shaddai, Almighty, really speaks of, of the nurturing character, in which case it shouldn't be translated El Shaddai, shouldn't be translated God Almighty, it should be translated God Almama. <laughs> Because if if that's the way it goes, if if Shad is the root. But here's the thing about other languages. Don't make assumptions. Shad is not the root of Shaddai. The root word in the Hebrew for Shaddai is the word Shaddad, which means devastating power. That sounds almighty. Devastating power. Strength of God. Now that's not to say God is not nurturing and caring and loving And there are those depictions of God. Even Jesus saying, like a mother hen, I wanted to gather you under my wings. So God has the compassion and the capability that the best mother in the world can pattern herself after God because He is a nurturing God. He is a loving God. But El Shaddai doesn't mean God the mommy. It's God the Almighty. And I want an Almighty home. Don't you? Don't you want to know the walls are secure? Don't you want to know that the locks will hold and the windows stay closed? And if you've ever experienced anything like home invasion, don't you want to know that you can keep out what's bad? I need God Almighty. Someone might say, well, Pastor Rick, that's kind of weak. I accept that. I have no problem with that. I need God Almighty. And that's how He is described here. Elohim, my God. The Lord, Yahweh. The Almighty, El Shaddai. This is safe home, shelter, shadow, refuge, fortress in God Almighty. To dwell in His shelter is to rest assured. He is strong. He is secure. He is my safe and protected home. Finally, at the release of verse 1, he gives the name the Most High, and the Most High, that name for God is Elyon. Elyon in the Hebrew. First time we see it in the Bible, Genesis 14, verse 18, where Melchizedek, high priest of God Most High, God Most High, El Elyon, he gives Abraham this blessing. Genesis 14, 19. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, El Elyon. Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be El Elyon, God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So right there, early on in the Scriptures, Genesis 14, God Most High, God is characterized as a rescuer-deliverer. 
Now the reason why we pause on this as we go into the psalm is before we hear anything else, you need to understand as you are homeward bound, my God, the Most High, the Lord is Almighty. This is who He is. And He is characteristically my shelter, my fortress, the shadow of His wings, my God in whom I trust. He's strong, He's safe, He's secure. So in that second verse, the psalmist breaks in, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. And then we go back to the first voice where he begins to speak to those who travel. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. We were, back when we first started the bridge, Cheryl and I spent about six, about six months, Cheryl and I and the kids, uh, renting a house down on West Beach. The house was down off of Happy Lane. When I saw that, I thought, well, that's, that sounds like a nice place to live. Happy Lane. So we rented this house and we, and we moved down there, moved all our stuff in. And the very first night in the house, I realized that our bedroom, Cheryl's in my bedroom, the window backed up to West Beach Road. And I, for whatever reason in that season of life, I would hear the cars go whizzing by just, just beyond, I mean, maybe 10 feet out from our bedroom window. It was an older house. The window was not very secure. And I just, every car that went by, I woke up. You know, had this overprotective sense of looking out for my family. And I just, I never felt comfortable in that house. If you live on Happy Lane, I'm sorry. I wasn't happy there. (laughs) But I thought about that in reading this. He delivers you from the snare of the trapper and the deadly pestilence. Okay, those are big deals. He'll cover you with his pinions. I get that. But but when you get to verse 5, you will not be afraid of the terror by night. I remember at night waking up rattled. Maybe because the window rattled when the cars went by, but it just, I was just uncomfortable there. It didn't feel safe home to me. But he who dwells in the shelter is never rattled. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence, verse 6, that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. We've seen a lot of that the last couple of weeks, haven't we? Terrors by day or by night, things that come out of the blue, not arrows that fly, but bullets that fly and people caught off guard and killed just going for a normal shopping day at Walmart. We see this in our world. I was talking with Bill this morning just about, you know, Cheryl's travel to Ghana, to Ghana in a couple of weeks and, and, you know, you want to make sure that she's secure over there. And then Bill made the comment, of course, you don't know if you're going to be secure over here. And it's true. That's the world we seem to be living in. A thousand may fall, he says, however, at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. So note this in these verses the snare of the trapper. Deadly pestilence, terror by night, arrows by day, night stalkers, daytime destroyers. And in verse 10, it goes on and adds evil and plague. These are all things, note, that they stalk without notice. These are all things in this list 
that are things beyond a person's control or ability to even navigate. There are attacks and troubles that come upon all people, anybody, weak or strong, ready or not. These are the surprise attacks. Everything listed here. But for he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, God is our safe home. Doesn't mean the attacks won't come. It means God is your security in and through them. No matter what storm blows in, no matter how unexpected the trouble, God is your dwelling place. God is our safe home. Who's the you in Psalm 91? The psalmist is speaking to you or to he, he who dwells in the shelter. So who's, who's the he? And then when he says he will cover you with his pinions, the Lord will cover you. Well, who's you that he's talking about? And that's an important question to ask because generically you can read the psalm and say, well, he's talking to me. I, I want to read it that way. This is for me. This is for my protection. This is my sense of security. And you wouldn't be wrong reading it that way, but I think we could be more specific. If this is indeed Moses' writing, and I kind of think it is, we can assume he's talking directly to the children of Israel on their journey to the Promised Land. That this is a psalm speaking to Israel. And he appeals to their safe home in the Most High. And we know this because it gets more specific. He gives three historical markers. Three historical markers... By the way, three markers that take us beyond the wilderness travel to another time and place in history. Note these, the three markers are pestilence, pinions, and protection, which is fun to say. Pestilence, pinions, and protection as as the, the description of... Or for the children of Israel in this certain time period in history. Note this pestilence in verse 3. He'll deliver you from that. In verse 6, the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. 2 Samuel 24.15 says, The Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died because they were in rebellion against the Lord. A pestilence. Revelation chapter 6 verse 8 says, I looked and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name death and Hades was following him following him, and authority was given to them over a fourth of all the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence. So this is a season where there's some pestilence that is threatening, but it's also a season where God says or where it said he will guard you with his pinions Verse 4, not his opinions. Opinions don't save anybody. But pinions, the wings of God, are protective. Deuteronomy 32, verse 11, in the Song of Moses says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he will spread his wings, or he spread his wings and caught them, and he carried them on his pinions. And then the third word is protection. Pestilence is happening, but there are the pinions of God and there's the protection of God. We see that in verse uh, 4, that His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. That is protection. Verse 7 and 8 talks about a thousand may fall, ten thousand may fall, and it will not approach you. So His protection... And the question is, as you read through the psalm, is there a time in Israel's history or in God's program with Israel when all three happen at once? 
pestilence, pinions, and protection. Is there a time? Revelation chapter 12, verse 6 says, The woman Israel fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Protection. Revelation 12, 14, The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a times from the presence of the serpent, the, the serpent pinions. The protection and the opinions of God given to Israel in the tribulation. My friends, what I'm saying is the only people of and point in all history, past, present, or future, that connects all the dots of verses 3 through 8 in the psalm are Israel in the tribulation. And so there may be something prophetic here. Where the psalmist, perhaps again, Moses is speaking to Israel. Not Israel in the wilderness traveling to the promised land, their safe home. But Israel in the wilderness, in a safe home, protected by God during that time of tribulation that will fall on the whole world. And as the pestilence comes down, the Lord's pinions fly His people to the place of His protection, even as His faithfulness is described in verse 4 as a shield and a bulwark. Psalm 57 verse 1 says, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. God is our protection. God will literally, physically, tangibly be the protection of Israel in that time of tribulation. I like Proverbs 18 verse 10 along these same lines that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. And again, the world will say, oh, so the righteous just runs away scared. No, the righteous knows where to go. The righteous knows where our strength is, where our safety and our security and our protection is. You run into the strong tower. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. I would say the name of Jesus. And the wings of His protection. Listen, this does speak of God's protection of Israel. This is looking at the children of Israel and Israel full grown later on in days yet to come. But these wings of protection are promised throughout the Bible to anyone who dwells in God. If you're with Him, this is your shelter that is spoken of. By the way, in Christ, we're going to fly, aren't we? We will fly, maybe not on His pinions or His wings, but we will be caught up. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. I can't believe you took us back into Revelation in the end times, Rick. I can't help it. It's what the Scriptures do. And remember, when we're talking about our homeward bound journey, when we're talking about making it safe home, that's what we're talking about safe home with Jesus Christ. But watch this. The psalm gets even more specific than Israel. You can read it generically for yourself, and you should. If you are in Christ Jesus, He is your shelter. But it's Israel through the wilderness. It's Israel in the wilderness. But it's more specific than that. As in verse 9, and watch this, the psalmist breaks in again with the second voice and then goes right back to the first voice. Verse 9. 
For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Lord your dwelling place, which is awkward, doesn't read right. The literal translation of this is, for you, O Lord, are my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. Which is still awkward, but that's literal. You, O Lord, are my refuge. You have made the Most High your dwelling place. So this can only be explained a couple of ways. One is the psalmist is cutting in on himself and then returning to the people. You can read it that way. You, O Lord, are my refuge. The Most High is your dwelling place. And that's possibly what he's saying. Or the psalmist may be talking to the Lord who has made the Most High his refuge. What do you mean? Listen to it again. For you, O Lord, are my refuge. The Most High, your dwelling place. You, Lord, are my refuge. And the Most High is your dwelling place. Whose dwelling place? The Lord's. The Lord is His own dwelling place? Absolutely. Look at verse 10. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Now we're starting to get into some hints here about the Savior. That the Lord made the Lord His refuge, His dwelling place. The Lord did this in the Lord. Kind of like Psalm 110, which we're getting to. I keep saying, we're going to land there. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to the Lord. And in the same way here, you, O Lord, are my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. So the Lord is also the refuge of the Lord, and I'm talking about Jesus. And then in verse 10, when He says no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent, the word tent there is a very specific Hebrew word. You can translate it dwelling. But it is the exact same word in the Greek equivalent that John uses. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, it's the same word that John uses in John chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word tent can be translated dwelling or dwelt or tabernacled. The word tabernacled, and John says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is talking about Jesus, and I believe this is a reference, nor will any plague come near your dwelling, speaking of the tent, the physical dwelling of Jesus Christ. Well, Rick, you're trying to find Savior Psalms, aren't you? And you just want to add this one in, so you're looking for everything you can find. Read on Verse 11. For He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. I never would have thought I'd agree with the devil about anything. But in this case, Satan clearly understood that this psalm referred specifically and personally to Jesus. And I agree with him. Turning your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4. And if you go out of here and out of context tell people, Pastor Rick agreed with the devil, I'm going to... I don't even know what I'm going to do, but something... 
<laughs> Matthew chapter 4. Watch this. Matthew 4 verse 1. Matthew's the first gospel in the New Testament. Easy to find. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said, if you're the son of God, and by the way, he knew he was. Of course he knew. But he's challenging the identity of Jesus. He'll he'll do that with you. If you are who you say you are, if you're really a follower of Jesus Christ, then... And he tries to undermine identity. That's what he's doing with Jesus. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, Psalm 91, 11 and 12, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan's quoting the Bible. Satan knows the Bible well. But he's purposefully mishandling it by means of what we would call, and I'm going to give you a little rabbit trail here. He uses proof texting and eisegesis which are two ways not to approach the Bible. Let me explain. Theologically speaking, and it's important to know this because people do this all the time, it is dangerous to do proof texting according to Theopedia.com. We'll just give a a technical uh, definition here. Proof texting is the method by which a person appeals to a biblical text to prove or justify a theological position without regard for the context of the passage they are citing. Do you understand what I'm saying here? As pulling a, a verse out of context. It's saying, well, the Bible says this. In the Psalms, the Bible says there is no God. Did you know that? There is no God. You can find that sentence in the Bible. There is no God. Well, the context is the fool says in his heart there is no God. That's the context. Read the whole thing. And that's what people do. And traditions do this. Denominations do this. There are entire followings in the church and just outside the church who do this, who take a single verse and base everything on it. But when you go look at the verse, it's like, well, it doesn't say that at all. The context gives it otherwise, explains more. Proof texting. It's dangerous. Don't pull a verse to prove your opinion when the verse does not say what you're trying to make it say. By the way, that's why I put the verses up. So that you can go back and see, this is not proof texting. Every verse quoted is in the context of the verse given. Or it wouldn't be up there. And I challenge you to find that on me. And if I'm ever using a verse just to prove my point, but it's not actually what the verse says, then please let me know. Proof texting is a messy way to approach the Bible. And too many people do it that way. Also, let me just add to that, as long as I'm there, if you are visiting a church or you are attending maybe a new church at some point down the line, because, of course, you're going to be here as long as possible, if you go somewhere else and a pastor is giving a sermon and you're handed these sermon notes and you really don't even need to use your Bible because the sermon notes have a fill-in-the-blank and then they have scriptures printed up for you, how do you know that's what the scriptures are really saying? How do you know what the context is? 
It's very easy and it happens way too much to proof text anything just to prove your own personal opinion or point. So that's proof texting. Eisegesis is the other one. Proof texting and eisegesis, two bad sides of the same coin. Eisegesis is the act of imposing meaning onto a text and is often described in terms of reading into the text rather than reading out of the text. And it's the opposite of exegesis, which is good biblical interpretation. Because exegesis allows the text to interpret the text. Eisegesis is reading into the text. You read something and say, oh, well, that means this, and you impose your meaning on it. Exegesis is letting the text bring the meaning to you. It's reading the Bible the way it's intended, and what exegesis does, a good Bible student is going to allow the history and the the grammatical and the linguistic and the contextual understanding to inform his or her study. What was happening? Who's being talked about here? Who was this directly for? It doesn't mean it can't have application to you, but who was this for? What does the grammar really say? This is why I'm always throwing out Greek and Hebrew, just to show that there is grammatical intention within God's Word, linguistics in God's Word. But more important than anything, because some of you might say, well, I don't know Greek or Hebrew, and I don't even know how to look that stuff up. Don't worry about it. What is the context of the passage? easiest thing to do as a Bible student, read the verse, and if you're uncertain about what it really means, or you have a sense that it means something but you're not sure, back up a bit, read down into the verse, and read beyond it. And you'll get the context and the sense of what's really being said. Well, Satan's not doing that. Simply put, the best Bible study is allowing the Bible to speak for itself, allowing the Bible to interpret itself, rather than using all these other things and trying to back up your own personal opinion. This is, by the way, what Paul meant when he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We do this with washing machine manuals. Why wouldn't we do it with the Bible? I used to build models when I was a kid. I learned pretty quickly that if I didn't follow the instructions carefully, I ended up with a behemoth. It's some bizarre thing that didn't look anything like it looked in the picture on the box. But if I went through all the directions carefully and read through and followed them, that's what the Bible's for. Rightly, accurately handle the word of truth. By the way, Jesus is the exegesis of God. Bible tells us, John says in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him, and the word explained is exegetomai, where we get our word exegesis. Jesus has contextually brought God before us so that we can see who God is. The full historical, grammatical, contextual representation of God Most High in the flesh. That's Jesus. So back to what's going on here. Proof texting takes verses out of context. Eisegesis reads stuff into verses that's not there. And that's exactly what the devil tries to pull on Jesus foolishly in verse 6. Again, when he says, if you're the son of God, if, again, undermining identity, if you're the son of God, well, throw yourself down. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Hey, your own word says you're covered. 
Your own word says you'll be fine. If you are the Son of God, then do something spectacular. Show all your peeps here in Jerusalem. You're standing on the pinnacle. Look, just jump. People will be like, whoa, that guy just jumped off the temple. And then they'll waft you down and you'll land gently on your feet. Those little angel wings going, you know, as they flap. Wouldn't it be great? That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. And you'll be fine. Do that, Satan says. The promise of Psalm 91 is not for tests and tricks. The promise is for trust and tabernacling. Resting in, Je- in, in God, for us resting in Jesus, the full representation of God, dwelling by faith in the shelter and under the shadow of His wings, not testing the parachute to see if it'll open. Well, God says, so as a little test this evening, this morning actually, let's go out and I'm going to jump off the top of the church. Well, who would do such a crazy thing? Yes, if Jesus had done this off the temple, it would have been a messianic marvel. Whoa, look at that! But it would have been completely out of step with a trusting faith, which is what Jesus showed us throughout His life. Here's how you trust God. Here's how you walk in absolute faith that God is your shelter. And this is something Satan in all his arrogance could not understand. Jesus never used His position for personal advantage. Think about that. The miracles of Jesus were never for Jesus. The healings that He performed were not to make Himself look good. In fact, typically when He healed, He withdrew and disappeared. His teachings were not about, hey, check me out, I'm such a great teacher. His motive was always other-centered. Never personally focused. Never selfish. By the way, that should tell us about God our shelter. That should explain something to us today in the church. Things like angelic support or divine power or listen, listen, spiritual gifts are not given for personal advantage or approval. God does not give spiritual gifts or abilities to anyone so that they can look more righteous than the other guy. More powerful, more impressive. That is not the point. Spiritual gifts are not to be vaunted or flaunted for applause or for esteem. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12.4, Hey, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all. And to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. If you're given a spiritual gift by God, it's to bless someone else. If you're given some supernatural power for a work of the Lord, it is to bless others. If you are given angelic support, it's not to say, yeah, the angels visit me all the time. It's so you can be supported. Back in the wilderness, how did Jesus respond? Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, Jesus said to him, On the other hand, and by the way, it's not as opposed to this, it's not on the other hand, you're saying this, but I say this. No, the phrase on the other hand is, and again. So in addition to what you said, in addition to he'll command his angels concerning you, that's not a falsehood, that's true. In addition to on their hands, they will bear you up so you'll not strike your foot against a stone. That's, that's a promise. That's true. That's legitimate. But in addition to that, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16. 
By the way, in all the temptations of Satan, Jesus responds quoting Deuteronomy. So I'd say that'd be a good book to study. And probably the one that Jesus was meditating on and thinking about when he was in the wilderness. Deuteronomy. But he he responds with this. Don't put the Lord, your God, to the test. Now understand this. It is absolutely characteristic of God to send power, gifts, and support. He does. There is no denial of that. In fact, if you look down in verse 11, look at what happens. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. The angels did show up. Jesus didn't have to leap off the temple to get anybody's attention. God sent angelic support when and where it was needed. Luke twenty two forty three tells us in the Garden of Gethsemane, on Jesus' darkest night, when He was sweating drops of blood, after this, an angel from heaven appeared to Him, strengthening Him. God sends angels. He sends in support. And in fact, Hebrews 1, 14 says, Are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit Salvation. You know what that means? Brothers and sisters in Christ, inheritors of salvation, you have angelic support. God will send angels. You may not see them, you may not even know it is them. Sometimes they look an awful lot like brothers and sisters in Christ. <laughs> you can be angelic to one another simply by giving support and encouragement and love and strength to one another, but there's also angelic support that the Lord will bring to those who are His. They're all around us. Their job, their work, is about helping us get safe home. To get the saved safe home. Angels are not curiosities. They are not party favors. They are not exhibits for paranormal thrill seekers. They're support of God. Same with spiritual gifts. Same with godly power. It is not given to make you or me impressive, but to get us safe home. Back to the psalm. Psalm 91. So Satan quotes Psalm 91, applying it to Jesus. For he will give his angels charge concerning you. And Satan says, the you there is Jesus. To guard you in all your ways, they will bear you up in their hands, that you do not strike your foot against the stone. Satan gives it that application uh, remarkably. Again, I have to agree with him. That the promise, the promise is generic. Yes, it's to all of us. Psalm 91, to get safe home in the shelter of the Lord. The promise is to Israel in the wilderness and, you know, on their travel to the promised land, but also in the wilderness during tribulation to, to take care of them, protect them, get them safe home. But the promise most specifically of Psalm 91 is to Jesus Christ Himself. That God would see him through his life and ministry. That his shelter would be that of the Most High. And you know, Jesus walked and lived with that mentality his entire ministry. He started his day in the shelter praying to God. He moved throughout the day in the shelter talking to the Father. He ended his day in prayer speaking to the Lord, his shelter, his God. And that's a hint, by the way, as to how you stay in the shelter. Do it the way Jesus did. Ever aware of the cover of Father. But back to the psalm again. Verses 11 and 12 we read. But verse 13 says, You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample down. Well, who tramples the serpent? That is none other than Jesus. What about this whole lion and young lion situation? Well, the lion refers to the devil... 
He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. So the lion is clearly the devil. The young lion is either demons or evil people caught up in his wicked will. The cobra and the serpent, again, Genesis 3.15, speaking of Jesus, says you shall, he shall bruise you, Satan, he shall bruise you, God says to the serpent, he shall bruise you on the head. And the word bruise is crush. He's going to crush your head. And you shall bruise him on the heel, as in nails through the feet of Jesus. So even this is not about snake handling. Joe? I know your friend. Every now and then Joe's like, i got to get me some snakes. Do a little Kentucky snake handling. And you know, we laugh about this, but people do this. They say, hey, the Bible says they'll pick up deadly snakes, so let's do it. Yeah, no, it's not about tricks. It's about trust. It's a misunderstanding of the word. Don't go out and start stomping snakes. You're not equipped. But Jesus, Jesus is the serpent stomper. And it's something Jesus can alone and will alone accomplish. So we hear the, the first voice, you know, as he's speaking to, and then the second voice, he breaks in on himself. And then the psalm ends with the third, the divine voice. And by the way, again, the psalm goes out to all who are homeward bound by faith in Jesus. And the psalm goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But I believe God now, God the Father, in the psalm is directly speaking to Christ the Son, listen to verse 14, because He has loved me. Therefore I, God says, will deliver Him. I will set Him securely on high because He has known my name. I will set Him on high. And that speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ who was securely set on high. Revelation 12.5 tells us He was caught up, raptured to God and the throne. Philippians 2 verse 8 Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every time will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This speaks totally of Jesus. I will set Him securely on high because He has known My name. And verse 15, He will call upon Me and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble or distress. I will rescue Him and honor Him. Another father-son promise that Jesus would be heard and comforted and rescued and honored. And then verse 16. With a long life, or literally length of days, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Let him see my salvation is literally, let him behold and enjoy. You might even say, let him feast his eyes on my salvation. And if you read, I won't do it right now, but if you read Isaiah 53, the same promise is there for the suffering Savior. Same promise. I'm going to give him length of days. That's eternal. And I'm going to let him be satisfied. I'm going to let him see all that he has accomplished. My salvation. Jesus. He has loved me. He has known my name. He will call on me, God the Father says. 
Now you might say, well, that's cool. But I was kind of hoping this homeward bound rescue was for me. I mean, it's nice that these promises and assurances are God the Father to Jesus. And I see what you're saying. And perhaps this entire psalm, Psalm 91, really is about Jesus. But I kind of want to share. I want to get under this covering, this dwelling. And you can and you do provided one thing. Verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. See, that's your part. Abide. Just abide. Simply put, there is only one way to get home safe, and that is to dwell, to abide in the shelter and the shadow. To be at home with God. Are you at home with Jesus? Are you comfortable with the Spirit of God? Being with Him and around Him and, and, and talking to Him, is this, is this a, a normal thing to you? I would say, is it a natural thing? But it's remarkable because it, it should be a natural thing to be in the presence of the supernatural God. But that's what we're talking about. If you're abiding, if you're at home with Jesus, you're just comfortable with Him. Well, how, how, how do I get there? How do I really lock in and, and remain? How do I dwell in Christ? And the absolute best and only way to be in Christ is to have Christ in you. Christ in you, which Paul calls the hope of glory. John 14, 23, again, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, Jesus says, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode in or with him, which is a promise of the Holy Spirit. My Spirit will be in you. I will be with you. He even goes so far as to say, I will come upon you. So that you can be fully surrounded. So you can dwell in the shelter of the Most High, of the Almighty. This promise of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to the walk of faith. To to the Christian life. So learn from Jesus the three things that make for this safe home journey. I dwell, I abide. That's the generic. But the three specific things that Jesus did that we can do like Him. Verse 14 again, because He has loved me. Because He's loved me. Hey, He loves you. He loves you. I love the the old story told, and I'm going to get this totally wrong, but about a a nun who was talking to uh, a friend of hers, an older woman, and they're standing by the lake, by by a lake or a seashore, and, and she just smiles looking out over the lake, and her friend says, what are you smiling about? She goes, my daddy is happy with me. And she just goes skipping off. You know, down the shoreline. My daddy's happy with me. Do you know how much God loves you? That's just, that's just a, a marvelous thought. To pause, whether in my brightest days or darkest moments, and say, He really does love me. For all my flaws, all my weaknesses, all my foolishness, He really does just love me. Because... Because He has loved me, therefore I will deliver Him. Sounds conditional, but understand that our love for God is predicated on His love for us. He loved us first. Right? 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. And if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's a tough one. You only love God as much as the person you love the least. I hate that. 
Because I can think of the people I love the least. And I, I love God more than that. Well, then show it by loving them the way you love Him. We practically live out this love relationship to be able to say, because He has loved me. Yes, I love God. Live it out practically the way that Jesus did. You could see His love for the Father in His love for people. It's obvious. Because He's loved me. And then also, I will set Him securely on high because He has known my name. This is amazing. This In this invitation to intimacy, it's, you know my name. It's because He knows my name. It's not because He knows my Bible. It's not because she's got the info on me. No, it's knowing God. But knowing the name of God is even more than intimacy shared. It's intimacy declared. Jesus said in Matthew 10.32, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. You love Him? Love others. You know His name? Tell people. Confess. Speak it. Verse 15, then He says, He will call upon me. And that's the third one. You dwell in the shelter, you will be among those who call upon the Lord. We spent much of Wednesday night talking about this promise. And about this idea of praying without losing heart. How long should I pray? Is there a limit? I don't see it in the Bible. Pray till you get to the Amen and then pray some more. But I've been praying for this person for years. Great, keep going. What, you got an appointment? You can't pray anymore for him? Pray faithfully. Pray constantly. Pray consistently. Pray all the time. Don't lose heart. Because it's God you're praying to. And He has a will and an intent here. And by the way, as you're praying, here's something you can pray. Praise God for the snare of the trapper. Praise God for the deadly pestilence. Praise God for the terror by night. Praise God for the arrows by day. Praise God for the night stalkers and the day destroyers and the evils and the plagues. Praise God for anything that causes us to call upon Him. Good or bad in this world, anything that brings me to my knees crying out for my shelter, my dwelling, my protection, praise God. And listen one more time to the Most High's response in verses 14 through 15, he says, through 16, Therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with a long life. I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. And by the way, salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. Yeshua. Call upon the Lord and you will see Jesus. The Irish say, good morning, God bless, and safe home. And if you've never made Jesus your dwelling place, if you've never given Him your life to say, hey, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus Christ, He is my Lord and my Savior. If you haven't done that, don't wait. Don't wait. You have a home provided and promised. Not just a home in heaven, which is eternal and secure and wonderful, but a home right now in Jesus Christ who wants to be in you. You can't get any closer to a person than that. And He's offered that to you. He has outstretched His hand to you this morning to say, come and be my child. Take my hand and trust me. And if you haven't done that, I invite you to do that today. Make Jesus your Lord and Savior.
I don't know what to say. We'll help you. Go and pray with someone. We're at the four corners. And if you need to pray about any other thing, let the Spirit move you and just come before the Lord. Maybe you just need to stay in your seat this morning and cry out to Him. But He's here and His covering is provided and He's listening. Won't you come to Him?